citizen's history, wherever you are and however you may be listening or watching. Uh, this is season one, episode six, and I'm your co-host, Padraig Rowan, a historian at QU at Quincy University. Uh, with me is my co-host, J. Matt Ward, also a historian at QU. And uh, we are delighted to welcome today Kate Epstein, uh, a historian at Rutgers University. She specializes in US and military history. And I've had such a wonderful time uh, speaking with you and learning from you. I'm just very glad uh, to have you here on the podcast. Welcome, Kate. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And rather than uh, diving into your specialty, we, we, we thought it would, it would be a good, at least a starting point for the conversation. Uh, to turn to some of what I, perhaps you would agree can be called your uh, public history, uh, work in public history. Uh, this article came out a few years ago, and uh, it's called The Purple Pill, Charlottesville in Retrospect and Prospect. And it came out with American Purpose. And one of the things I really liked about it, and I was really drawn to about it, is the way in which you show the... Uh, our our perception of the culture wars uh, to be a bit too Manichaean, that in fact there's some uh, unremarked similarity, maybe even structural similarity uh, in some ways between the two camps that we can uh, that we can talk about and at the same time tie to some of the the ways in which we as professional historians might be might be uh, derelict in our duty, perhaps and what we can possibly do better. Uh, so I was wondering if we could start off with how you came to write this article, how it started to germinate, and um, uh, what really inspired you? What were some of the main you know, immediate influences uh, as you came to write this article? Um, so let me think about that. Um, uh, well, first of all, thanks, thanks for reading the piece and highlighting it. Um, although I am a historian, I have a terrible memory uh, and often forget what I have for breakfast every morning, even though I have the same thing for breakfast any morning. So asking me to recall what was in my head when I wrote that piece now, what is it, five years ago? Uh, it's, a, it's a tall task, but I do remember, I can remember a couple of things about it. Um, I had been really, um, well, of course, I, you know, I followed um, Kind of the the events at Charlottesville, the, the, the white supremacist rally, and then the um, the murder um, of a young woman um, by uh, the gathered white supremacists, um, and more just more broadly, kind of the Trump administration's response and the uh, criticisms very justly <laughs> levied at him. Um, for his remarks and conduct in the aftermath. Um, so I was following all of that closely because I was fascinated by it. Um, I never really been, uh, and still am not like a political junkie the way I think some more knowledgeable people are, but I definitely started following politics more carefully, uh, more closely after 2016 um, uh, and Trump, Trump's election, which, um, uh, horrified me, but also shocked me. And I was the shock. Uh, I was very angry at myself because um, to not know your own country um, uh, 
or to know your own country so poorly that uh, as to be taken by shock in the way I was, um, I thought did not reflect well on me cognitively. Um, so I was paying much closer attention. So I guess that was part of it. Um, and then I'd also read, I can't remember if it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times, but the story of a guy um, named R. Derek Black, um, who's actually, I, I'm actually not sure where he is now. He had, uh, he was doing a PhD, I want to say at the University of Chicago um, in medieval history. Um, but uh, the article was kind of a profile of him and it was absolutely fascinating. So this guy uh, was the son of the founder of Stormfront, which is like the most notorious, hardcore, <laughs> neo-Nazi um, uh, white supremacist website um, in the US. Um, he was, you know, David Duke was his godfather. Um, and um, he had actually, and so he'd grown up, um, I, I suppose is like an unusually intellectually curious white supremacist, but very much a, a white supremacist who, you know, believed in all of it. And um, had gone to New College uh, recently in the news for other reasons uh, in Florida and uh, had kind of through a combination of, of kind of rational reflection and then also kind of emotional connections with some uh, extremely open-hearted people there um, had kind of come to question his uh, his beliefs and uh, subsequently and, and since then has been uh, kind of on the, the forefront of decrying uh, racism in the U.S. today and in U.S. history. And um, I thought this, his story was just absolutely fascinating. And uh, I when the, so that's how I kind of knew his name. And then I read um, uh, the guy who had written the profile was a, a journalist named Ron Suskind who then wrote a book about Black. And I read the book and it's absolutely fascinating book. Um, and then I, I think it was that I saw that the Times, New York Times published an op-ed by Black after the, um, after Charlottesville. And he made an argument which sort of became very familiar, um, or much more familiar uh, to me and probably to other people with um, the 1619 Project and kind of uh, critical race theory um, as it sort of became much more common uh, in public discourse about the centrality of racism, um, white supremacy to the American founding. And I, was struck by what seemed to me the kind of analytical similarity between his argument and some comments that Trump had made um, in the immediate aftermath of the rally. Um, not the the really notorious one uh, that there were there were fine people on both sides, but some other comments Trump had made offering uh, reflections, if they can be called that, arguments um, about the the nature of the founders and kind of how many of them have been slaveholders. And so it just seemed to me to kind of uh, scramble the politics of that interpretation in ways that I didn't fully understand but wanted to understand. And so, um, so yeah, so I started writing the essay. I had also been reading a lot 
coverage of the 1619 project had been uh, just super impressed by the work of a historian named James Oakes, um, who I think is brilliant. Um, and uh, I was also very taken with uh, an essay by a historian at Princeton named uh, Matthew Carp about the 1619 project. And he was, he was kind of, he picked up or, well, or called attention to certain similarities between the 1619 project and the 1776 commission, which was the presidential commission appointed by Trump sort of deliberately as a, as the opposite <laughs> of the 1619 project. And um, Harp had identified some really striking similarities between their approaches to the past um, and was, uh, I, I thought, just in a really smart, thoughtful way, pushing back against the kind of dominant journalistic construction of these things as polar opposites. And um, so, yeah, so I guess it was it was a combination of those things, kind of the growing interest in politics, the, the just having encountered Black story, which is just an or like I said, just an incredibly interesting story. Um, and then following some of the coverage of the 1619 project. Yeah. Yeah, I I was wondering one of the one of the things that you do in this article is you take take this and 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 that that similarity, hidden or otherwise, and you show some ways in which we as professional historians are, are falling down on the job. Uh, you know, all too ready to criticize the 1776 commission report uh, and not ready enough to criticize the 1619 project. And um, if I could, uh, you make the point that there's, there's this, uh, you know, in the historical profession, there's a strong anti-presentist norm there. And in trying to be objective, and you, you do an admirable job going through the, the, the ways in which we've been, uh, uh, this ideal of objectivity has in some ways been upended. But uh, I'm wondering if you could talk further about the, okay, presentism taken to an extreme is definitely something we really want to avoid. But is it something that we can completely avoid? Is there, is, is there a way for us to put some buffers in place or some, uh, where we can say, okay, rather than deny presentism completely, which might inject some hidden presentism in, uh, despite our best intentions, is there a is is there a way that we could um, we could pursue that historical project a little bit more uh, with more humility, let's say? Yeah. So I mean, to me, the kind of uh, like watchwords of the historical profession should be epistemological humility. Um, but not epistemological nihilism. Um, so, uh, uh, sorry. I said, I like that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, um, I, um, yeah, so I, I tried in the piece to provide some historical context on why I thought the historical profession was behaving as it was, um, in response to both the 1619 project and the 1776 commission. Um, which was, uh, its responses were very different, basically welcoming and affirming the 1619 project. The AHA has put out public statements making clear its approval of the 1619 project, uh, the AHA being the American Historical Association. Um, 
and uh, it had uh, it is also publicly criticized, um, put on record its uh, uh, disapproval of the 1776 Commission report um, as a work of history. And um, so I was interested. What so one thing I I just hadn't seen discussed very much in coverage of the 1619 project, but it's where you know I teach I or we rotate uh, teaching of our graduate methods seminar. We have a master's program um, in our department, and I love teaching that. I I I, I love kind of like philosophy of history questions, but um, uh, you know if I were teaching the um, if I were teaching the 1619 project in that class or teaching the way the historical profession has responded to the 1619 project versus the uh, 1776 commission, like I would definitely like talk about the history of the historical profession because it's hard to understand its response without some grasp of that history. Um, so as I, the way I kind of explain it to myself um, and here I'm, I think I'm following closely uh, Peter Novick's account in that, that Noble Dream, um, which is a history of the profession and a, just a, an extraordinary piece of scholarship, I think. Um, but, um, you know, the way Novick tells the story, and I, I think this is an account that most historians would kind of like broadly agree with, is that the profession was kind of epistemologically naive and arrogant um, in the 19th century, subscribed to kind of this positivist view that uh, it's very easy to observe things external to ourselves without our perceptions and our biases kind of interfering with the uh, the process of observation, which gradually got blown up <laughs> over the course of the, the 20th century. Um, and the pendulum then swung, in my view, to kind of the opposite extreme, uh, where uh, we really can't know anything about a reality that's external to us. What we think we know is actually just a reflection of our biases or our desire for power in some way. And um, I would like to be somewhere in between those two <laughs> extremes as a profession. I think the other thing that, that's gone on that I, I talked about in the piece is uh, sort of a uh, political estrangement of the historical profession from the American people. Um, which I think has sort of both long-term and short-term causes. Um, the, I think there's a, a broad uh, kind of uh, and, and substantially justified horror at the complicity of various historians in uh, uh, transparently ideological nationalist projects, um, uh, some of which were evil, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. Um, and so I think a lot of historians kind of recoiled from wanting to kind of help help nations, broadly speaking, nation states, um, and wanted to kind of belong to a transnational higher community of, of scholarship in some way. Um, uh, and then I think Viet Vietnam in the kind of 60s uh, would, would be the shorter term cause for that estrangement. And so the profession has, I think, moved way far to the left of kind of where um, even kind of, I don't would call them just kind of like left liberal Americans are. Um, I think the profession is more kind of left radical um, than, than left liberal. Um, 
So that's kind of my, um, so that's kind of what I, the, I, I wanted to try to explain like what was going on with the, like this didn't come out of nowhere. There were reasons, some of which I think were very good reasons for the profession to kind of recoil from its previous commitments to objectivity, uh, the, the idea that we can quite easily observe a, a, a reality external to ourselves and to recoil from its commitment to nationalism. Um, but what's taken its place is also, I, I would argue, equally problematic. Um, and um, uh, so certain forms of activism are welcomed in the profession, uh, but not all forms of activism. But once you kind of concede that principle, um, then you don't have a strong, strong principled ground to stand on uh, in opposing forms of presentist activism that you don't like. Um, so, and I think there's almost like a, a knee-jerk anti-Americanism, which is just as problematic as a knee-jerk pro-Americanism because neither of them is responding to evidence um, they, they're, they're both the, the, the reflexivity is the problem. Um, so I guess I would, um, you know, with regard to the presentism question, uh, which you let off with, I certainly, I think presentism, I mean, a, you're never going to get rid of it because historians are people too. Um, and, uh, we all have, um, we all have. I don't know, we're all shaped by our identities and our, our own unique historical context. I would also say that I don't think it would be a good thing to get rid of presentism, even if it were possible, um, for two reasons. Number one, I think like some level of presentism is kind of necessary just to make what we do as a profession relevant um, to people. And like there's different ways presentism can be done in that regard. Some I think very crude, some others much more sophisticated. I think you kind of need it for the relevance. And number two, I think that, you know, what's sometimes called presentism, um, like, is vital in injecting, like, really important new questions. <laughs> um, so, like, it's no accident that, quote, unquote, like, presentist concerns among female and African-American historians in the 1960s uh, led to an explosion of really important research on the history of race and gender um, in the United States. So, like, I don't want to... I don't want to lose that, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so I think like presentism can be actually quite constructive. Um, uh, as, but I guess the key is that it needs to be constructive as measured by sort of standard scholarly metrics. Is the argument original? Is it important? Is it well supported by evidence? Not according to unscholarly metrics, which are do I like the uh, on ideological grounds, the argument that's being advanced. Yeah. I really one of the one of the most surprising things and one of the best things for me about this article is is that you are uh, showing effectively the that the substance of the 1776 commission report owes way more to historical scholarship meaning left-leaning historical scholarship than it would care to admit and that maybe uh, what what i was thinking as i was reading uh, as i was reading your article was kind of you know uh um hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue yeah. <laughs> kind of that kind of, 
yeah. I, I'd love to hear some more about that because we tend to think of these things as polar opposites. You got the 1619 and you got the 7076 commission report. And I just loved the way you tie, tied it together and showed, and even though the only person that I recognized on the 1776 commission reports authors list mm -hmm. was Victor Davis Hansen. Yeah. I didn't recognize anybody else. Yeah. And, um, and yet just the, the work of the last half century, let's say, was was just so fundamental to how they are perceiving themselves as Americans now, uh, in spite of yeah. being everything against uh, uh, against everything the left has to offer. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I um, so a lot of that the, that kind of line of analysis in my piece really owes a lot to the Matthew Carp article that I mentioned. Um, because Carp, one of the, I thought the things that he does like brilliantly and persuasively in his piece, which is in um, Harper's, um, he shows that like the 1776 commission is making moves that like the political right wouldn't have made during the 1990s. Now I was like, I was in middle school and high school in the nineties. So I wasn't like super politically aware, but I can kind of remember what the history wars were like then. And I was like, yeah, Carp is right. Like when I was growing up, it was like the right was still saying the Civil War was about states' rights. Um, that's not what the 1776 Commission is saying. Like the left won, you know, like left wing historians, like just like you just can't make that argument anymore. Um, uh, even if you're, you know, a president with backed by the White House um, with with lots of resources and power. Um, so um, I can't remember if, if this is a point that part makes or if it's something I noticed, but like another thing the uh, 1776 commission does, which again, it's just like unimaginable, uh, you know, even like 30 years ago is saying that like John C. Calhoun is the forerunner of identity politics, um, which is kind of hilarious in a way. I mean, I think it's, it's, I, I would, I would push back against that because I think it's anachronistic. Uh, so I think it's, it's a pro problematic on methodological grounds, but like ideologically, um, you know, I don't think the left should have a problem with that. Um, it's like, yeah, John's, yeah, it was white identity politics. This is what the, the reason kind of the people on the left were, and this is so much of the point of what are some, what the right used to call identity politics is like saying, no, no, we didn't invent this. Like historically dominant identity has invented this. Um, so, um, so yeah, so it was kind of, yeah, it was like Carp's essay just kind of really made me, uh, yeah, kind of opened up that line of analysis for me. Um, and uh, and then it really annoyed me. Uh, I was going to say really pissed me off. I would be the more accurate phrase that um, the AHA doesn't go after the 1776 commission on that at all. Um, so I think what they're basically doing is plagiarizing. Um, and sort of they're presenting themselves in the 1776 commission report. There's the, you know, the, the 60s are the enemy, um, the kind of the radical, uh, well, both the radical and the liberal kind of emancipationist projects, liberationist projects of the 60s are the political villain um, in the 1776 commission report. But like the right wasn't doing the work of uh, of all of, of basically the scholarship that the 1776 commission is relying on when they're saying, you know, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, these are the great heroes of American history. The right was not saying that in the 1960s. 
Yeah, too. and MLK, you know. And MLK, MLK yeah, yeah. In the 1776 project, yeah. Yeah, so. Um, Claiming themselves as the true heirs of MLK exactly. and Sojourner and Frederick. Exactly, Taylor. exactly. And so, like, on scholarly grounds, I was just, yeah, this to me is in some ways, you know, just the, reflects the intellectual bankruptcy of the AHA's response to this is like, is the criticism was wholly on ideological grounds as though the AHA is a political advocacy group and not a scholarly organization. When there was a crucial scholarly critique to be made, which is you can't plagiarize. Like you can't basically appropriate the work of the kind of uh, the political group that you spend your whole report demonizing. Like that's not that's that's not cool. You can't that that's that's what plagiarism is. Um, so like, why aren't they making that argument? And then 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 I sort of after I finished sort of mentally spluttering was like, well, why aren't they making that argument? Like, what work is it doing for the AHA not to point out that plagiarism? And I think the work it's doing for the AHA is that the AHA finds it quite useful to be constructed as the polar opposite of the Trump administration. Um, and if you actually pointed out that intellectual debt from the 1776 project to the work of left-wing scholars from the 1960s on, um, that would scramble the political narrative that DHA is invested in, just as it would scramble the political narrative that the 1770 commission is, inv is invested in. So yeah, so that's kind of where, um, yeah, once I, Carp, Carp's piece sort of sent me down that road um, it's also, and I'm sorry about the dog barking in the background. Um, mail just got delivered, which is a very threatening act. Um, the, uh, the other thing uh, is uh, James Oakes, who I mentioned, had has a, I think, terrific essay uh, in Catalyst, which also I hadn't actually read when I I wrote the the Purple Pill piece, um, but he has this material that was new to me on kind of like the teaching of American history. Um, uh, and he looks at textbooks and he's, you know, he kind of has a go at the argument that like, we're just now starting to teach like the real history of American oppression, like, doing this for decades now, you know, it's a, there's this kind of like self-congratulatory uh, tone from the profession or from people who, you know, think they've, they've just started doing this for the first time and there's a history there too. Um, so, so yeah, so that was, that was the argument that I tried to make. Um, is that there's something in here? Well, first, I mean, in the first instance, I just wanted to make the argument that there's a scholarly problem here that the AHA should have pointed out and didn't. I think there are also scholarly problems with the 1619 project that the AHA could very well have pointed out and didn't. Um, and then to then to try to reflect on well, what's like a cultural historian would, you know, well, what ideological psychological work is this doing for the AHA? Jim, I've got so many more questions. Do you, do you, do you have any, any questions of Kate? I, I have a few things I could jump in on. Uh, I really appreciated your handling of Lincoln and, and Lincoln and Douglas, uh, the, the Stephen Douglas, the bad Douglas, not the, yeah, 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 right, Douglas, right. the good Douglas. The one is Douglas, not the two S Douglas. <laughs> Uh, I tell my students all the time, in fact, every time I teach a survey, the first thing I say on day one, after we go through like basic concepts of what's a primary source, what's a secondary source, how does analysis work, these sort of things is like, 
do not fall into the trap of hero worship. You can pick anybody out of history and and say, well, they did a lot of really good things. They're great. And then uh, as you know, things like the 1619 projects do turn up a lot of dirt about these same people and, and then you know cast them aside utterly. And I try to encourage them that doing either one of those things is getting away from the, the analytical work of history itself, which is to contextualize and explain change over time. And I think that's something, I mean, I, I love the, the CARP essay that, you, that you've referenced before I read it uh, shortly after it came out. And I reread it in part today before we started. And I was again struck by his argument that originalism, whether we start with 1619 yeah. or 1776, yeah. negates one of the basic you know, foundational historical exercises, which is to mark change over time. So I, I don't know if I have a question so much as I wanted to point out that I think we do a disservice to Lincoln by not acknowledging his change over time. Because you've got those great quotes from 1858 with the, the Stephen Douglas debates. You know, at some point he says, yeah, white people are superior to black people. And that's a very damning thing to say. And then I, he, later on he says, well, all men are created equal. And then in 1860, you get the, the whole uh, first inaugural, I'm not going to touch slavery. I, you know, I only want to limit it, its expansion into the West. And depending on your perspective, you know, Southerners see that as very terrible because he's limiting the expansion of property and, and, and promise into the West. Whereas some Northerners, especially the radical abolitionists, say, well, that, that's, that's quite a compromise because we, as... Uh, Oaks talks about in the Scorpion Sting, you know, they have all these intentions to go after slavery where it is to have a cordon of freedom around yeah. the South and go after it. And Lincoln doesn't seem to be on board with that. And then in 62, we get the infamous um, colonization incident where he sort of upbraids the, uh, the, 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 the black people that come to see him in the White House. But by 1865, he's endorsing the 13th Amendment and he's using this politically loaded phrase, a new birth of freedom at the second inaugural. Um, my perspective is that Lincoln changed his mind over time and that by cherry picking these different quotes, we're not really getting at this process of change that happens. And I think Lincoln is a great avatar for illustrating to anyone, but especially to students, that you can't understand history without understanding that first Lincoln was a product of his time. And then by the time of his death, I think Lincoln was on his way to being a transitional figure in American yeah. history and, and sort of pushing the way towards uh, a biracial democracy. You know, I, I'm as critical of Lincoln as, as the next guy. I went through that phase of like, oh, yeah. Lincoln's just another, he's just another yeah. silly liberal who didn't accomplish anything. But yeah. in recent years, I've kind of reformed on that. I think Lincoln was working his way towards um, a, a more radical understanding or something resembling radical understanding of, of biracial democracy. What's your take on that? And what are perhaps some other ways that we can encourage people to, to see the complexity, the, the, the process of change in history? I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said about Lincoln. That's very much my understanding too. Um, that's right. I, we were talking before you started recording about like both being interested in the Civil War growing up. And I read like everything about Lincoln I could get my hands on. I was a very popular kid in middle school. And, um, 
uh, I, I just, if I like Lincoln is pretty close to a hero for me, actually. I mean, I, and I say, you know, with qualifications, but very unusual for someone to be both a genuinely good person and a genuinely great person. That's mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of people who are kind of great at the good at the macro level or pretty awful at the micro level yeah. um and vice versa yeah um and he actually seems to have been in addition to moving in the right direction and on the right side of most things in my view like to have been a pretty decent human being as well yeah. um like in his private life um so uh so yeah so i will i will say that lincoln is probably as close to a a, gen, a real figure who's a hero as I have, but I think for me, he's heroic in part because he was complex. Yeah. Um, like, you know, marble paragons aren't really very interesting. Um, uh, but he was so deeply human. Um, not only because of, you know, the, the, the demons he battled emotionally with his depression, but um, no, I agree with you. I mean, he's clearly, it seems to me, I mean, this is why it's also so important to to get people contextualized in in their time is because things that might seem conservative to us now actually may have been quite radical then. Um, and so, you know, Lincoln seems to me pretty clearly to have always been anti-slavery. Like, there doesn't seem to be any evidence about that. But one of the things that you kind of learn as you go through um, uh, more serious study of history. I didn't understand this distinction at first is that you can be anti-slavery and still be very racist towards black people. You can be anti, uh, anti-slavery, but not anti-racist, so to speak. Uh, and that seems to me where Lincoln was very much. Uh, he did not view African-Americans as his social equals, um, which was, I think for a lot of white Americans kind of the ultimate line that they just could never bring themselves to cross. Um, political equals, okay. Economic equals, maybe, but social equals, you know, who might associate with white women was just kind of the ultimate taboo. Um, but, you know, but by the end of his life, I mean, it seems to me there's a evidence that Lincoln was actually moving towards interacting with African-Americans as social equals. Um, that's what he's doing with Frederick Douglass um by the end of his life um and as you say it seems to me you know, he's a politician he's a very good politician i'm very glad he was on our side um because he seems to have i mean just had a tremendous kind of tactical feel for how far he could push um but it also seems to me without question that he was pretty much always pushing in the right direction uh, which was in the direction of less slavery, <laughs> rather than of, of undermining slavery. Um, and, uh, you know, Oakes is like so good on that. And I think he kind of, he, his, he's neither holding Lincoln up as this, you know, uncomplicated, you know, hero who never harbored anti-Black prejudice, clearly he did. Um, but he's also a guy who genuinely grew over time. Um, and that's in some some ways like even more admirable than someone who kind of had all the right opinions to begin with. Um, uh, and so, yeah, he didn't. <laughs> um, but he moved. Um, yeah, just like a really even just the capacity to grow and change um, 
itself I find you know very admirable in him so I'm doing exactly by the way what I, I tell my students not to do I mean the the words I say to them is like you're in the business of understanding and explaining uh, I do not want to see praise and blame in your papers it's <laughs> like admirable or a moral judgment uh but uh but if we detach like the kind of the trajectory that you charted and his own thinking from uh, moral words, then um, yes, I, I agree entirely with you on the substance of that arc. Um, I'm sure you know a great deal more about it than I do, so I'm the last person you should be uh, asking about it, but that's very much my understanding. Um, and uh, I guess just personally, not speaking just as a person rather than as a scholar, it's something I really admire about Lincoln. Yeah, I'm wondering how we can because uh, Lincoln's like an easy example, right, for yeah. historians to be like, oh, he, he, Lincoln is very clear with his wording most of the time, and mm -hmm. I, I think there's a, a pretty clear trajectory to his life, but I, I wonder how we can translate that into public policy or, or, or public history, uh, like getting, not necessarily Lincoln's change, but like mm -hmm. analyzing anything, any source, any news story, any historical idea more deeply. I, 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 for me, it's really hard to get people to think on that level because we are so partisanized, you know, this is good or this is bad and, and, and that's just the way it is. For instance, I, uh, I, when I was in graduate school at, at LSU, I, I worked at the Whitney Plantation for a year and people would show up with very, uh, pardon the pun, black and white perspectives yeah. on the way that slavery operated. I had a handful of people that showed up and and, and just were bound and determined to, you know, uh, slavery was started by Africans in, in Africa and, and then, uh, you know, white people were just, uh, you know, a, you know, a side effort to the overall work of slavery. But most people showed up and they were, you know, ready to condemn, you know, all white people in the South as like right. equally slaveholding. And so, and, and I was okay. trying to pull people in either direction and, and get them to understand that not everyone's experience in slavery is the same. It differs by crop. It differs by property. It differs uh, by gender. There's like a thousand factors that go into considering slavery, which is completely different than making some sort of global moral statement about right. the, the nature of slavery. And this is something I struggle with as a historian, but also as a citizen of the United States, the same as everyone else, of how to get people to think uh, and, and leave politics at the door and think more critically about the process of history and how things look different or change over time. And, uh, you know, you've written this great article uh, I had not read before. I, I happily read it today. And that's probably more than I've ever done to move the needle, politically speaking. But like, what do we do, both as historians, but moreover as citizens, to to get people to drop that partisanship and th and think more critically? Uh, get off social media. Okay. Starters. I'm writing that uh, down. I uh, yeah. Point number one. Hashtag pro tip. <laughs> um, on an irony intended. Um, but uh, yeah, I actually I have another. A uh, love note to the historical profession called uh, academic Twitter puts the moron and oxymoron. Um, I mean, like just the whole grammar of social media. Um, and there, like, you can do it better or worse, but in general, it's like 
no one's forcing you. And I don't mean this to historians, like no one's forcing you as Americans to be on Twitter. Like it's pretty easy to opt out. Um, in some ways it's easier to opt out than it is to opt in because you don't have to do anything to not be on Twitter. Um, but uh, anyway, everyone knows that and remains on social media um, because it's, you know, the dopamine feels good, um, yeah. I think. Um, but I don't know, more broadly as a citizen, like, I, I do think that uh, diversity is really important. And I, I was kind of, I grew up in a very kind of, you know, lefty, crunchy, politically correct uh, kind of corner of the world and um, like really believed and still believe what people say about diversity. Um, you know, when I had, uh, I went to, grew up in like a, like a fairly white world socially, but, um, I, you know, one, I, like one of my probably two best friends was African-American and like, you know, when I read store books, uh, I love to read. And so, you know, when I would read, you know, books about that involved racial prejudice, I was thinking like, man, that could have been my friends. Like that's, you know, and it just, it personalized it for me in a way or, and personalized it or like concretized it. So it isn't just like this abstract thing that you're reading about. Um, and, um, and I, I, you know, I, at some point learned it wasn't in the air as much as I was, when I was growing up that like, there was this thing called homosexuality and that someone I knew was gay and, um, then I, I just became outraged at uh, kind of any any sign of, of homophobia. And so like that, the kind of theory of, of diversity makes a lot of sense to me in that regard. Because um, you do understand that these are, they're like three dimensional flesh and blood people who are good and decent, who get hurt by prejudice, which is a long way of saying that I think viewpoint diversity uh, and ideological diversity is also really important. Um, uh, like one of the, I don't know, maybe this will sound silly, but like one of the um, probably more important relationships for me, like in the past seven years in terms of my own, uh, since, since Trump's election, just in terms of like my own, just trying to be a better American, a better citizen. Uh, is like, I, I live in a left-wing bubble. I only know one person who voted for Trump um, and he's, a contractor who did some work on our house and like we didn't talk about politics at first because i didn't want to you know i didn't want to uh kind of infringe on his privacy it was none of my business um and uh but i just re really liked him as a person and then we started talking about politics so like that's who i think about now like the same way i you know would conjure up my my friend growing up like i i think of him now you know when i read about about Trump voters. And, you know, he doesn't stand in for a huge collection of people any more than my friend stood in for like all black people. Um, and that's like, if you, if you think that that's problematic too, and you want to be trying to be like attentive to the diversity um, and complexity of, of identity groups. But I don't know, just yet, yeah, like getting out, getting offline, um, seeking out relationships. I think I've become a lot better. I don't know if I've become good, but I've become better 
at just like asking people about themselves and why they think what they think and what I hope are sort of open-ended and non-judgmental ways. Um, and that really is the, the skill you need. It's the same skill set you have, you use as a historian. Like you're not supposed to be coming to your sources in a judgy way. You're supposed to be coming to your sources, like ready to learn from them. Um, and trying to understand them rather than to, you know, hold them up on a pedestal or tear them down. Um, and so that seems to the kind of, this is part of the why, the reason I think the humanities in general are so important and the, and the study of history is so important kind of like a healthy democracy is it really is the same kind of intellectual and emotional muscles um, involved and, and, and a great deal of discipline too, I would say in um, like being a good citizen and being a good historian. It's like, you can't, it's the opposite of narcissism, basically. It's like, you can't just go around like imposing your own identity on everyone else. Like you have to let them breathe <laughs> um, yeah. and say things that, you know, might surprise you. Um, so, yeah. So I don't, I, I don't think I, my take is any different from, you know, what a million other people would say about, um about kind of how to try to get past uh partisanship and i i guess the one of the things is i would say is like i i do think some people are just genuinely loathsome like <laughs> you know and it's you know we, i you understand them you're like oh yeah that, that confirms my <laughs> my my negative judgment um, yeah, like john c calhoun I like John C. Calhoun. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's like, okay, I, I, I did put in the work to understand you on your own terms. And I think you still suck. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess the other thing I would say, one of the weird things that's happened for me, and this isn't really directly related to the piece at all, but one of the weird things that's happened for me since Trump was elected is that I've become simultaneously uh, like more despairing about politics and yet more hopeful about my fellow citizens. And what I mean by that is just that there seems like to be so few glimmers of light when you look around the landscape of American politics. But I actually, I guess I've gradually become convinced that most Americans don't actually, A, don't live online and B, aren't accurately resent, uh, represented by the extremes on the left and the right. Like, I guess I think most people, you know, just kind of want a quiet life um, and, you know, might care about politics, but like it's not the most important thing in their life. Um, and I'm actually like, oh, I'm actually very happy to share a country with those people, you know, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, it's like we could, I could find a way to get along with them, you know, um, without too much trouble. Um, and I guess, so as I've, I've, I've become more and more kind of appalled by the extremes, <laughs> but at the same time, more and more convinced that like, that's not where most Americans are. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's, that is what I believe. I, I hope so. I, I'm assuming, uh, we have very different social backgrounds. I'm assuming you grew, grew up on the coast or I did. California. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you, where in, are you from? I'm from rural Mississippi. No kidding. Uh, I'll be damned. Uh, 
it, yeah, so my journey has been from like the far right to okay. now the far left. So I potty, I, I probably uh, uh, embody both of those extremes you're talking yeah. about at, at various points of my life. But it, it sounds like what you're saying is ideological and social exposure sort of translates to personal change over time, or hopefully does. Yeah, and I guess I also, I mean, I just think you just have to study history to understand. I mean, go back to Lincoln. People do change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And some people, I mean, like, I, you know, if, if that's the thing. Like, I think, you know, I look at, like, Derek Black's story. And mm -hmm. it's like, holy hell, if ever, you know, a kid was born without a chance in life to, like, develop into a decent human being, it's the son of the founder of Stormfront. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, that's, that's, that's not a great hand to be dealt um but uh it's interesting you know his his father comes off as a really interesting like in some ways he's actually kind of like a good dad like yeah. in terms of just like hitting the marks of fatherhood of like going to his son's events and being interested in him and same for his mother who's also a hardcore white supremacist um and so you know that's i'm not saying that like hard right you know neo-nazis are the people I would choose to invest like relatively scarce um, emotional and intellectual energy and kind of converting. But I also don't think most Americans are there. Yeah, um, yeah. And I would point and I guess the thing about this like black story that and like you, you, you can read anecdotes about people who, you know, were in white supremacist gangs who leave them. And, you know, like people do change. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a valid question as like a matter of political strategy about like, where do you put your resources? Um, and that might not be, you know, might be a lot of resources for not a great return. Um, so I can certainly understand that as a strategic judgment, just as a human judgment. Like, I don't know, there are, there are definitely like some, a few honest to God psychopaths um, in the world, but I don't, most of us are just trying to get by. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I try to, I try to remember that. Yeah, I agree. Podrick, I, I, I can keep going or I can toss it back over to you. Well, I know that we're almost out of time, Kate. I just wanted to make the observation. It, 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 I know this is a, this is not the, the best phrase for, for what, for, for what I'm hearing you talk about, but kind of, kind of that the way that Nixon, and you hear this, this the same language from Trump, weaponizing this silent majority. Yeah, right. yeah. Look, I mean, this can be this can be absolutely something that you know it's it's in it's in play from any direction that we we choose to approach it. Yeah, most people are just not going to be as um, as horrible or as angelic as we imagine. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, on on either end of the moral spectrum. Um, and I think, you know, my, I guess my view of human nature is that, like, very few people, I think, try to do the wrong thing. There are some, but, like, very few people try to do that. That's, like, very, very psychologically unusual. Most of us um, just try to do what's easy and convenient. Um, and oftentimes that will not be the right thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I again, as a matter of like tactics and strategy, like you ought to understand, like just the psychological makeup of people. Um, and to, I don't know yet yeah, to assume that like most people are, are trying to be evil. Um, and that goes for people on the left and on the right. 
um it's just their do it and this is, it goes back to you know what what you said jay matt about like what's necessary to study history it's like you know on they're making sense to themselves you know um uh in turn as about why they're doing what they they're doing so how are they explaining themselves themselves what story are they telling themselves like that's a really interesting question um and we all tell stories to ourselves about ourselves um so um so yeah so that's yeah i guess to, to me the the quote unquote silent majority i prefer the phrase exhausted majority um which comes out of the um more in common it's one of the i think it might be more in common reports um okay. which is this kind of this group that tries to um uh kind of bridge partisan divides and uh, I like that phrase because I think a it's accurate. A majority of Americans are exhausted. B it doesn't have the kind of ideological and racial baggage of the phrase the silent majority. Um, but yeah, the exhausted majority, as I understand it, is most Americans who are not on the far left or on the far right, um, and who I am sure I disagree with profoundly about a number of things. Um, but uh, who I'm, you know, happy to share a country with, too. Um, and I guess maybe, maybe just being a military historian has something to do with it here. Like, you know, you read, I, I also have always been fascinated by combat memoirs um, and by combat service. I've, not, I've, I've, I've never been in the military myself, but you know, people from like wildly different backgrounds, you know, um, save each other's lives in wartime. Um, and probably people who, you know, don't have the same views on like tax reform. <laughs> you know, they that's you don't like you don't ask someone about that uh, before you decide to you know throw your body over a grenade to save their lives. Um, so I, I get, I think that also just like shapes my thinking about this probably on some level. It's you know we've done it before. <laughs> um, so um, so yeah. So yeah, exhausted majority, I think, is out there. And I think I probably like most of them. <laughs> or would like them on a personal level if I knew them. Listen, I I hope we will be able to do this again soon. I really look forward to talking. And thank you so much for thank you so much for sharing your your time and your perspective with us. This has been really wonderful. It's been my pleasure. I really, yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on and just yeah, engaging so carefully with the piece as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm just, I guess, trying to stumble my way through <laughs> like everyone else, but I appreciate you hosting my stumbling. Well, thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Pleasure.